Chapter 7 of The Brass Bottle by F. Anstey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reese. The Brass Bottle by F. Anstey. Chapter 7 Gratitude A Lively Sense of Favors to Come. Most men, on suddenly finding themselves in possession of such enormous wealth, would have felt some elation. Ventimore, as we have seen, was merely exasperated. And although this attitude of his may strike the reader as incomprehensible, or absolutely wrong-headed, he had more reason on his side than might appear at a first view. It was undoubtedly the fact that, with the money these treasures represented, he would be in a position to convulse the money markets of Europe and America, bring society to his feet, make and unmake kingdoms, dominate, in short, the entire world. But then, as Horace told himself with a groan, it wouldn't amuse me in the least to convulse money markets. Do I want to see the smartest people in London groveling for anything they think they're likely to get out of me? As I should be perfectly well aware that their homage was not paid to any personal merit of mine, I could hardly consider it flattering. And why should I make kingdoms? The only thing I understand and care about is making houses. Then am I likely to be a better hand at dominating the world than all the others who have tried the experiment? I doubt it. He called to mind all the millionaires he had ever read or heard of. They didn't seem to get much fun out of their riches. The majority of them were martyrs to dyspepsia. They were often weighed down by the cares and responsibilities of their position. The only people who were unable to obtain an audience of them at any time were their friends. They lived in a glare of publicity and every post brought them hundreds of begging letters, and a few threats. Their children were in constant danger from kidnappers, and they themselves, after knowing no rest in life, could not be certain that even their tombs would be undisturbed. Whether they were extravagant or thrifty, they were equally maligned, and whatever the fortune they left behind them, they could be absolutely certain that, in a couple of generations, it would be entirely dissipated. And the biggest millionaire living, concluded Horace, is a pauper compared with me. But there was another consideration. How was he to realize all this wealth? He knew enough about precious stones to be aware that a ruby, for instance, of the true pigeon's blood color and the size of a melon, as most of these rubies were, would be worth, even when cut, considerably over a million. But who would buy it? I think I see myself, he reflected grimly, calling on some diamond merchant in Hatton Garden with half a dozen assorted jewels in a gladstone bag. If he believed they were genuine, he'd probably have a fit, but most likely he'd think I'd invented some dodge for manufacturing them, and had been fool enough to overdo the size. Anyhow, he'd want to know how they came into my possession, and what could I say? That they were part of a little present made to me by a genie in grateful acknowledgment of my having relieved him from a brass bottle in which he'd been shut up for nearly three thousand years? Look at it how you will, it's not convincing. I fancy I can guess what he'd say. And what an ass I should look. Then suppose the thing got into the papers. Got into the papers? Why, of course it would get into the papers. As if it were possible in these days for a young and hitherto unemployed architect suddenly to surround himself with wondrous carpets and gold vessels and gigantic jewels without attracting the notice of some enterprising journalist. He would be interviewed the story of his curiously acquired riches would go the round of the papers. 
he would find himself the object of incredulity, suspicion, ridicule. In imagination, he could already see the headlines on the news sheets. Bottled billions. Amazing arabesques by an architect. He says the jar contained a genie. Sensational story. Diverting details. And so on, through every phrase of alliterative ingenuity. He ground his teeth at the mere thought of it. Then Sylvia would come to hear of it, and what would she think? She would naturally be repelled, as any nice-minded girl would be, by the idea that her lover was in secret alliance with a supernatural being. And her father and mother, would they allow her to marry a man, however rich, whose wealth came from such a questionable source? No one would believe that he had not made some unholy bargain before consenting to set this incarcerated spirit free. He, who had acted in absolute ignorance, who had persistently declined all reward after realizing what he had done. No, it was too much. Try as he might to do justice to the genie's gratitude and generosity, he could not restrain a bitter resentment at the utter want of consideration shown in overloading him with gifts so useless and so compromising. No genie, however old, however unfamiliar with the world as it is now, had any right to be such a fool. And at this, above the ramparts of sacks and bales, which occupied all the available space in the room, appeared Mrs. Rapkin's face. "'I was going to ask you, sir, before them parcels came,' she began with a dry cough of disapproval, "'what you would like in the way of entree to-morrow night. "'I thought if I could find a sweetbread at all reasonable.' To Horace, surrounded as he was by incalculable riches, sweetbread seemed incongruous just then. The transition of thought was too violent. "'I can't bother about that now, Mrs. Rapkin,' he said. "'We'll settle it to-morrow. I'm too busy.' "'I suppose most of these things will have to go back, sir, "'if they're only sent on approval-like?' "'If he only knew where and how he could send them back. "'I... I'm not sure,' he said. "'I may have to keep them.' "'Well, sir, bargain or none, "'I wouldn't have them as a gift myself, "'being so dirty and fusty. "'They can't be no use to anybody, "'not to mention there being no room to move "'with them blocking up all the place.' I'd better tell Rapkin to carry em all upstairs out of people's way. Certainly not, said Horace, sharply, by no means anxious for the Rapkins to discover the real nature of his treasures. Don't touch them, either of you. Leave them exactly as they are. Do you understand? As you please, Mr. Ventimore, sir. Only, if they're not to be interfered with, I don't see myself how you're going to set your friends down to dinner tomorrow, that's all. And, indeed, considering that the table, and every available chair, and even the floor, were heaped so high with valuables that Horace himself could only just squeeze his way between the piles, it seemed as if his guests might find themselves inconveniently cramped. "'It will be all right,' he said, with an optimism he was very far from feeling. "'We'll manage somehow. Leave it to me.' Before he left for his office, he took the precaution to baffle any inquisitiveness on the part of his landlady by locking his sitting-room door and carrying away the key. But it was in a very different mood from his former light-hearted confidence that he sat down to his drawing-board in Great Cloister Street that morning. He could not concentrate his mind. His enthusiasm and his ideas had alike deserted him. He flung down the dividers he had been using and pushed away the nest of saucers of Indian ink and colors in a fit of petulance. "'It's no good,' he exclaimed aloud. "'I feel a perfect duffer this morning.' I couldn't even design a decent dog-kennel. 
even as he spoke. He became conscious of a presence in the room, and, looking around, saw Fakrash the genie standing at his elbow, smiling down on him more benevolently than ever, and with a serene expectation of being warmly welcomed and thanked, which made Horace rather ashamed of his own inability to meet it. "'He's a thoroughly good-natured old chap,' he thought, self-reproachfully. "'He means well, and I'm a beast not to feel more glad to see him. And yet, hang it all, I can't have him popping in and out of the office like a rabbit whenever the fancy takes him.' "'Peace be upon thee,' said Fakrash. "'Moderate the trouble of thy heart, and impart thy difficulties to me.' "'Oh, they're nothing, thanks,' said Horace, feeling decidedly embarrassed. "'I got stuck over my work for the moment, and it worried me a little. That's all.' "'Then thou hast not yet received the gifts which I commanded should be delivered at thy dwelling-place?' "'Oh, indeed I have,' replied Horace, "'and—and I really don't know how to thank you for them.' "'A few trifling presents,' answered the genie, "'and by no means suited to thy dignity, "'yet the best in my power to bestow upon thee for the time being.' "'My dear sir, they simply overwhelm me with their magnificence. "'They're beyond all price, and—and and I've no idea what to do with such a superabundance.' "'A superfluity of good things is good,' was the genie's sententious reply. "'Not in my particular case. I—I I quite feel your goodness and generosity. But, indeed, as I told you before, it's really impossible for me to accept any such reward.' Fakrash's brows contracted slightly. "'How sayest thou that it is impossible, seeing that these things are already in thy possession?' "'I know,' said Horace. "'But—you won't be offended if I speak quite plainly?' Art thou not even as a son to me, and can I be angered at any words of thine? Well, said Horace, with sudden hope, honestly, then, I would very much rather, if you're sure you don't mind, that you would take them all back again. What? Dost thou demand that I, Fakrash el Amash, should consent to receive back the gifts I have bestowed? Are they, then, of so little value in thy sight? They're of too much value. If I took such a reward for, for a very ordinary service, I should never be able to respect myself again. This is not the reasoning of an intelligent person, said the genie coldly. If you think me a fool, I can't help it. I'm not an ungrateful fool at all events. But I feel very strongly that I can't keep these gifts of yours. So thou wouldst have me break the oath which I swore to reward thee fitly for thy kind action. But you have rewarded me already, said Horace, by contriving that a wealthy merchant should engage me to build him a residence. And, forgive my plain speaking, if you truly desire my happiness, as I am sure you do, you will relieve me of all these precious gems and merchandise, because, to be frank, they will not make me happy. On the contrary, they are making me extremely uncomfortable. In the days of old, said Fakrash, all men pursued wealth, nor could any amass enough to satisfy his desires. Have riches, then, become so contemptible in mortal eyes that thou findest them but an encumbrance? Explain the matter. Horace felt a natural delicacy in giving his real reasons. 
I can't answer for other men, he said. All I know is that I've never been accustomed to being rich, and I'd rather get used to it gradually, and be able to feel that I owed it, as far as possible, to my own exertions. For, as I needn't tell you, Mr. Fakrash, riches alone don't make any fellow happy. You must have observed that they're apt to, well, to land him in all kinds of messes and worries. I'm talking like a confounded copybook, he thought, but I don't care how priggish I am if I can only get my way. Fakrash was deeply impressed. O oh, young man of marvellous moderation, he cried, thy sentiments are not inferior to those of the great Suleiman himself, on whom be peace. Yet even he doth not utterly despise them, for he hath gold and ivory and precious stones in abundance. Nor hitherto have I ever met a human being capable of rejecting them when offered. But, since thou seemest sincere in holding that my poor and paltry gifts will not advance thy welfare, and since I would do thee good, and not evil, be it then even as thou wouldst. For excellently was it said, The worth of a present depends not on itself, nor on the giver, but on the receiver alone. Horace could hardly believe that he had really prevailed. It's extremely good of you, sir, he said, to take it so well. And if you could let that caravan call for them as soon as possible, it would be a great convenience to me. I mean, er, the fact is, I'm expecting a few friends to dine with me tomorrow, and, as my rooms are rather small at the best of times, I don't quite know how I can manage to entertain them at all, unless something is done. It will be the easiest of actions, replied Fakrash. Therefore have no fear that, when the time cometh, thou wilt not be able to entertain thy friends in a fitting manner. And for the caravan, it shall set out without delay. By Jove, though, I'd forgotten one thing, said Horace. I've locked up the room where your presents are. They won't be able to get in without the key. Against the servants of the jinn, neither bolts nor bars can prevail. They shall enter therein and remove all that they brought thee, since it is thy desire. Very many thanks, said Horace. And you do really understand that I'm every bit as grateful as if I could keep the things. You see, I want all my time and all my energies to complete the designs for this building, which he added gracefully, I should never be in a position to do at all, but for your assistance. On my arrival, said Fakrash, I heard thee lamenting the difficulties of the task. Wherein do they consist? Oh, said Horace, it's a little difficult to please all the different people concerned, and myself too. I want to make something of it that I shall be proud of, and that will give me a reputation. It's a large house, and there will be a good deal of work in it, but I shall manage it all right. This is a great undertaking indeed, remarked the genie, after he had asked various by no means unintelligent questions, and received the answers. But be persuaded that it shall all turn out most fortunately, and thou shalt obtain great renown. And now, he concluded, I am compelled to take leave of thee, for I am still without any certain tidings of Suleiman. You mustn't let me keep you, said Horace, who had been on thorns for some minutes, lest Beevor should return and find him with his mysterious visitor. You see, he added instructively, so long as you will neglect your own much more important affairs to look after mine, you can hardly expect to make much progress, can you? How excellent is the saying, replied the genie, the time which is spent in doing kindness, call it not wasted. Yes, that's very good, said Horace, 
feeling driven to silence this maxim, if possible, with one of his own invention. But we have a saying, too. How does it go? Ah, I remember. It is possible for a kindness to be more inconvenient than an injury. Marvelously gifted was he who discovered such a saying, cried Fakrash. I imagine, said Horace, he learnt it from his own experience. By the way, what place were you thinking of drawing, I mean, trying, next for Suleiman? I propose to repair to Nineveh and inquire there. Capital, said Ventimore, with hearty approval, for he hoped that this would take the genie some little time. Wonderful city, Nineveh, from all I've heard, though not quite what it used to be, perhaps. Then there's Babylon. You might go on there. And if you shouldn't hear of him there, why not strike down into Central Africa and do that thoroughly? Or South America. It's a pity to lose any chance. You've never been to South America yet. I have not so much as heard of such a country. And how should Suleiman be there? Pardon me. I didn't say he was there. All I meant to convey was that he's quite as likely to be there as anywhere else. But if you're going to Nineveh first, you'd better lose no more time, for I've always understood that it's rather an awkward place to get at, though probably you won't find it very difficult. I care not, said Fakrash, though the search be long, for in travel there are five advantages. I know, interrupted Horace, so don't stop to describe them now. I should like to see you fairly started and you really mustn't think it necessary to break off your search again on my account, because, thanks to you, I shall get on splendidly alone for the future, if you'll kindly see that that merchandise is removed. Thine abode shall not be encumbered with it for another hour, said the genie. O thou judicious one, in whose estimation wealth is of no value, know that I have never encountered a mortal who pleased me as thou hast, and, moreover, be assured that such magnanimity as thine shall not go without a recompense. "'How often must I tell you,' said Horace, in a glow of impatience, "'that I am already much more than recompensed. "'Now, my kind, generous old friend,' he added, "'with an emotion that was not wholly insincere, "'the time has come to bid you farewell, forever. "'Let me picture you as revisiting your former haunts, "'penetrating to quarters of the globe, "'for, whether you are aware of it or not, "'this earth of ours is a globe,' hitherto unknown to you, refreshing your mind by foreign travel and the study of mankind, but never, never for a moment losing sight of your main object, the eventual discovery and reconciliation with Suleiman, on whom be peace. That is the greatest, the only happiness you can give me now. Goodbye, and bon voyage. May Allah never deprive thy friends of thy presence, returned the genie, who was apparently touched by this exordium. For truly, Thou art a most excellent young man. And stepping back into the fireplace, he was gone in an instant. Ventimore sank back in his chair with a sigh of relief. He had begun to fear that the genie never would take himself off, but he had gone at last, and for good. He was half ashamed of himself for feeling so glad, for Fakrash was a good-natured old thing enough in his way. Only he would overdo things. He had no sense of proportion. Why, thought Horace, if a fellow expressed a modest wish for a canary in a cage, he's just the sort of old genie to bring him a whole covey of rocks in an aviary about ten times the size of the Crystal Palace. However, he does understand now that I can't take anything more from him, and he isn't offended either, so that's all settled. Now I can set to work, 
and knock off these plans in peace and quietness. But he had not done much before he heard sounds in the next room which told him that Beevor had returned at last. He had been expected back from the country for the last day or two, and it was fortunate that he had delayed so long, thought Ventimore, as he went in to see him, and to tell him the unexpected piece of good fortune that he himself had met with since they last met. It is needless to say that, in giving his account, he abstained from any mention of the brass bottle or the genie, as unessential elements in his story. Beevor's congratulations were quite as cordial as could be expected, as soon as he fully understood that no hoax was intended. "'Well, old man,' he said, "'I am glad. I really am, you know, to think of a prize like that coming to you the very first time. And you don't even know how this Mr. Wackerbath came to hear of you. Just happened to see your name up outside and came in, I expect. Why, I dare say, if I hadn't chanced to go away as I did, and about a couple of paltry two-thousand-pound houses, too. Ah, well, I don't grudge you your luck, though it does seem rather... It was worth waiting for. You'll be cutting me out before long, if you don't make a mess of this job. I mean, you know, old chap, if you don't go and give your city man a gothic castle, when what he wants is something with plenty of plate-glass windows and a Corinthian portico. That's the rock I see ahead of you. You mustn't mind my giving you a word of warning. Oh, no, said Ventimore, but I shan't give him either a gothic castle or plenty of plate-glass. I venture to think he'll be pleased with the general idea as I'm working it out. Let's hope so, said Beevor. If you get into any difficulty, you know, he added, with a touch of patronage, just you come to me. Thanks, said Horace. I will, but I'm getting on very fairly at present. I should rather like to see what you've made of it. I might be able to give you a wrinkle here and there. It's awfully good of you, but I think I'd rather you didn't see the plans till they're quite finished, said Horace. The truth was that he was presently aware that the other would not be in sympathy with his ideas, and Horace, who had just been suffering from a cold fit of depression about his work, rather shrank from any kind of criticism. "'Oh, just as you please,' said Beevor, a little stiffly. "'You always were an obstinate beggar. "'I've had a certain amount of experience, you know, in my poor little pottering way, "'and I thought I might possibly have saved you a cropper or two. "'But if you think you can manage better alone, "'only don't get bolted with by one of those architectural hobbies of yours, that's all.' "'All right, old fellow. "'I'll ride my hobby on the curb,' said Horace, laughing, as he went back to his own office.' where he found that all his former certainty and enjoyment of his work had returned to him, and by the end of the day he had made so much progress that his designs needed only a few finishing touches to be complete enough for his client's inspection. Better still, on returning to his rooms that evening to change before going to Kensington, he found that the admirable Fakrash had kept his promise. Every chest, sack, and bale had been cleared away. "'Them camels came back for the things this afternoon, sir,' said Mrs. Rapkin, and it put me in a fluster at first, for I made sure you'd locked the door and took the key. But I must have been mistook. Leastways, them Arabs got in somehow. I hope you meant everything to go back. Quite, said Horace. I saw the... the person who sent them this morning, and told him there was nothing I cared for enough to keep. And like his impotence sending you a lot of rubbish like that on approval, and on camels, too, declared Mrs. Rapkin. I'm sure I don't know what them advertising firms will try next. Pushing, I call it. Now that everything was gone, Horace felt a little natural regret and doubt whether he need have been quite so uncompromising in his refusal of the treasures. 
I might have kept some of those tissues and things for Sylvia, he thought, and she loves pearls, and a prayer carpet would have pleased the professor tremendously. But, no, after all, it wouldn't have done. Sylvia couldn't go about in pearls the size of new potatoes, and the professor would only have ragged me for more reckless extravagance. Besides, if I'd taken any of the genius gifts, he might keep on pouring more in, till I should be just where I was before. Or worse off, really, because I couldn't decently refuse them then. So it's best as it is. And really, considering his temperament and the peculiar nature of his position, it is not easy to see how he could have arrived at any other conclusion. End of chapter 7 Recording by Matthew Reese, Davenport, Iowa